the scriptural text this morning is Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 16. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious doctrine we get to dive into this morning. A wonderful doctrine, a beautiful doctrine. One that was developed before the foundation of the world where you chose us in Christ, though we don't deserve it. Father, may I preach your word. May your words be spoken. May I be filled with your spirit. Father, may your people hear your word and understand. Lord, this, is a, this can be a heavy doctrine. But I pray it is not a discouragement, but nothing but an encouragement that we may understand it well and we may go out of here with a deeper, more profound love of you, our great God and Savior. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I want to take us on a journey this morning back in time to a time before the world began, to a time where there was no time, and to eternity past, and to the mind of God, a mind in which you, beloved, if you are in Christ, were on the forefront of. That's right, he was thinking of you. And he looked upon you with the light, and he said, I'm going to take this spiritually dead corpse and breathe the breath of life into it and make you my son and make you my daughter and not based on your status, your prestige or anything that you would ever do. But because of his good will and pleasure, according to the riches of his grace, he chose you. He elected you and set you apart as a gift to his beloved son. I'm going to take this totally depraved sinner and I'm going to make them the apple of my eye. This is the doctrine of unconditional 
election. And what a beautiful doctrine it is. Within it lies the essence of the gospel and every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places that have been prepared for us and will be bestowed upon us. It is a glorious doctrine that shall lead to ceaseless praise and endless thanksgiving. It makes even the most of hardened men fall to their knees, tears flowing from their eyes in awe of their Savior. Unfortunately, though, one of the greatest doctrines to ever be pinned on the pages of Scripture is one of the most despised, if not the most despised, doctrine by many who profess Christ. Many will say, if this is true, then God is a monster, God is cruel, he is unfair, he is unloving, and a host of other lies. Tim LaHaye, the author of the Left Behind series, he called unconditional election a dreadful doctrine. could be nothing further from the truth. But he called it a dreadful doctrine and close to blasphemy. In a blogger I read this week, he recounted a, a dialogue where an opponent referred to the doctrine of election, and, and this is something else right here, but he's, he called it a gross and despicable hellish garbage heresy. And that, that's no surprise, as any doctrine that removes, the supposed, or, or, or removes man from his supposed throne and elevates God as sovereign, especially over salvation, it will be met with hatred and scorn. Many fight against it. Yet, when you open the pages of Scripture, when you search them, unconditional election is an undeniable truth. If you think this is a mistake, if you, if you doubt this, let us look at a few texts. You might want to jot some of these down. John 6, 37. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. A few verses down in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go forth and bear fruit. Ephesians 1 4, even as he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world, 1 Thessalonians 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2 13. But we are always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. As the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Titus 1.1. Church, this is everywhere. It is everywhere in scripture. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ. For the sake of God's elect. 1 Peter 1.1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. I can keep going. We look back in the Old Testament. 
God elected Noah and his family before flooding, the old, before flooding the whole world. He chose Abraham from all the countries of the world. He picked Isaac and not Ishmael. He lifted Moses from the house of Pharaoh. He plucked Rahab from the mouth of Jericho, Lot from the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he elected Israel, the least of all peoples in the earth. Church, one thing is abundantly clear. You can't tell me otherwise. Salvation is of the Lord and the Lord alone. And this reality is no more clearly taught than in the ninth chapter of Romans. And it is my prayer this morning, church, that we will be deeply encouraged by what we see. As I said in my prayer, this is a heavy, it can be a heavy doctrine, but it is a wonderful doctrine. And I pray that you will be encouraged and see that the doctrine of, the, of election or unconditional election is the only way that man can be saved, that apart from God's electing love, all will be rightfully and justly condemned. I originally set out to just deal with verses 10 through 16, but realized I needed to start back in verse 1 in order to give us a full context of what is going on here. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's how we will break down the text. First, we have a problem to be solved. Then... An answer given, an example put forth, and a defense argued. So that is a problem to be solved, an answer given, an example put forth, and a defense argued. As we begin to look at the text, in order to grasp what is occurring in Romans 9, I think we need to revisit what was happening In Romans chapter 8, what has been declared as they are both connected, chapter 8 and chapter 9, that is. So in chapter 8, which we actually, which I preached on a couple of weeks ago, Paul had just gone through what many refer as the golden chain of redemption. We looked at this again. We looked at verses 28 or beginning in 28 and finished the chapter. And we saw that all things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And remember, why do all things work together for good? Because God had already foreordained it. He planned before the foundation of the world not to only save you, but to keep you. Verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew. And remember, this does not mean some type of foreknowledge in the sense that God looked down the corridors of time and, and he's wondering who, who's going to be saved as if he doesn't already know. And, and, he, and he looks and says, oh, so-and-so is going to put my faith in him, I'm put my faith in me, or their faith in me. And so let me choose them based upon that. Well, the problem with that is simple. That would not be God choosing, as the scriptures tell us. That would be man choosing and then God responding, making man sovereign Instead of God. Second, the scriptures tell us. We did not choose him, but he 
chose us. So as we learn this word for new, it means that he foreloved, that he set his love on us beforehand, before the foundation of the world, predestining us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Paul then went through a condensed version of the order of salvation, showing God would complete what he started, ending in our glorification. And the implications of these truths was that since he was for us, if God is for us in this way, if he would not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? He asked that grand rhetorical question. And of course, the answer was no. The answer was no. Therefore, since we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ, nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it is there where chapter 8 ends. But with this wonderful truth, presents a dilemma, or probably better said, a perceived problem that needs to be solved. Paul, are not the descendants of Israel, somebody is asking, are not the descendants of Israel or the physical descendants of Israel the elect of God? But you're telling us that the elect are those who are chosen in Christ Jesus, those whom he has saved. If this is true and most of the and most of the descendants of Israel have not believed, does that not mean that the purposes of God have failed, that they have been thwarted? And so Paul sets out to answer this foreseen objection beginning in chapter nine. Knowing what the implications of Romans chapter, eight, Romans chapter 8 means for unbelieving Jews, Paul begins to express deep sorrow for their spiritual state. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. They have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. As we look at this, I want us to see two things. It is not my main point, but I think it's important to look at. First, the glorious truths for us as believers are terrifying truths for the unbeliever. Paul knew that since God is for us, that he was against those who did not believe, particularly the unbelieving Jews, that they were condemned, that they were separated from the love of God. And second, because of this, Paul is in unceasing anguish, even to the point in verse three that he says, if it were possible, if it were possible that he would forfeit even his own salvation, if that would mean his brothers and sisters in the flesh would come to Christ, that they would be saved. This is a deep burden that we probably can't even begin to comprehend that Paul has for his brothers and sisters in the flesh. A deep burden for the lost. Church, the the, the sovereignty of God and salvation 
does not and should not ever remove this burden. It should not ever remove this burden that we have for those outside of Christ. It is our desire to see all come to Christ, to see all saved, to see all repent and come to the knowledge of truth or of the truth. Though it is not theologically correct, Charles Spurgeon, so wanting people to be saved, he once prayed, Lord, save the elect and then elect some more. That was his heart. That was his heart because he wanted to see people come to Christ just as Paul is here. And that is the heart that we should have towards the lost. But after expressing this, Paul gets to the crux of the issue in verses four and five. And then he's going to give an answer in verse six. But he continues this this argument or or this uh, or this objection that that is being given to why the Jews have not believed or why they are not or why the physical descendants are not the elect. And he says, yes. Yes, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, and he ends it with blessed forever. Amen. To them, to the Jews, had come the oracles of God, the law, the prophets, and even Christ himself had come through their lineage. Paul, how can you say that the people of Israel as a whole, at least those who have not believed, the physical descendants of Abraham, how can you say that God is against them? Again, if what you say is true regarding Christ, then has not the word of God failed. That is the accusation. But Paul says, no, you are mistaken. Verse six, but it is it is not as though the word of God has failed. Church, the word of God did not fail. It never fails. They had just misunderstood the promise. They had misunderstood the promise. The promise was always to a remnant. It was always to those who would believe in Christ. That is why he says at the end of verse 6 and into verse 7, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Simply being a Jew does not make you a child of God. That is what he is saying. The children of the promise have always been those who would have faith in Christ. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed before he was circumcised. It was accounted to him, he was accounted as righteous. And salvation had never, it never came to the law. I mean, came through the law, but always through Christ. Either looking forward to his coming in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, New Testament, Believing in the Christ who had come. That is why in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, the apostle writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. This is the same language we see in verse 8 
of Romans 9, where it says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. No, Paul says to this argument, the promises of God have not failed. The elect are not the physical descendants of Israel, but are the offspring of Christ. And to prove his point even further of why so many of the Jews, his kinsmen in the flesh, were not of the elect, of those who have believed in Christ, he provides examples of God's election throughout the history of Israel. And the main example put forth of God's electing grace is that of Jacob and Esau. Now, I think it's important to mention that many will try to make the rest of Romans 9 say anything except of what it actually says. The argument usually comes in the form of Paul is not talking about the election of individuals to salvation, but the election of nations and that of physical promises. But that is one reason I set the context back to Romans 8 and then beginning in chapter 9. So what is being said is clear. If Paul is talking about nations, if he's talking about nations and not the election of individuals, then none of chapter 8 or 9 make any sense. Remember, chapter 9 is a continuation of chapter 8, which is clearly talking about the salvation of individuals in Christ. That he called, he predestined, he justified, he glorified. And up to, and up to this point in, chapters nine, in chapter 9, he has been arguing that only individuals from Israel who have believed in Christ are among the elect. It then makes no sense for Paul to switch to the election of nations. Now, I do understand certain doctrines, they're difficult to grasp. They can be heavy, especially this one. But we can't make the word of God say something that it does not just because we don't think it sounds nice. I do want to say quickly that this does not negate None of this negates man's responsibility. There are two sides of the same coin, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And there is mystery here. Romans 11, Romans 11, 33 through 36 tells us, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We cannot know the mind of God fully. Us having finite minds cannot fully grasp what is infinite or we would be God ourselves. But it continues for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has been given a gift to him or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory and forever. Amen. 
But as I said, these two things, they, they go together. And like, there is mystery. There is mystery. But I did want to say that man's responsibility is not negated in any of this. Now let's look at the example put forth. After using the example of choosing Isaac over Ishmael in verse 9, Paul moves to the choosing of Jacob over Esau that we see in verse 10 or beginning in verse 10. Now to be clear, nations did come from Esau and Jacob, but Paul is using them as examples to show us God's freedom and choosing those whom he will for salvation. Verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had received children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born and had done nothing good or bad. The choosing of Jacob had nothing to do, had nothing to do with anything good that he would do or anything good that would be in him. Paul is saying God did not look at the works that the boys would do in the future and choose one based on that. If that were the case, then neither one of them would have been chosen, as we will see more fully a bit later. But in his argumentation, he leaves no doubt. He leaves no doubt that they played any role as they were not even born. So he continues in order that God's purpose of election, his, pur- the pur- his purposes according to the counsel of his will, that his purpose might continue. And here it is, not because of works, not because of works, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. No man can stand before God and say, you chose me because of something I did. No, it is because and only because of him who calls. And who is him who calls? As we saw back in chapter 8, it is God the Father who is the author of salvation. Saints, we make much of Christ and we should. We proclaim Christ, as Paul said, that we preach him and him crucified. But let's not forget or forget who sent him. Let's not forget the father. It was the father who loved you so much that he gave his own son, that he chose you before the world began. And for no other reason than that he loved you. God loves to save sinners. He loves to save sinners. He loves to set his affection upon those who don't deserve it. Don't doubt that. Don't doubt that for even one moment. And in this saving, he loves saving even the least of us. And we see an example of this in verse 12. Notice what he tells Rebecca. She was told the older will serve the younger. For the older for the older to serve the younger was unprecedented in this time and culture. It was to be the older that received all the blessings and the younger was to serve him. But God does not operate based on the wisdom 
and expectations of man. So he reverses the order, flipping it on its head. And that is always how God operates. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you wise, according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. And, and notice it says not many. So not all. But it says not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Your salvation had nothing to do with your status, your prestige, or anything of the like. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Where is the wise prophet? Or where's the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made, or has God has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Even in the sinning of his own son, it's what nobody or he was what nobody expected to be or expected him to be. What was said to John? Remember what was said to John regarding Jesus when he questioned, are are you the one to come or, or is there another? And Jesus talking to the crowds, he says, John, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaking in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A a, a man dressed in, in fine clothing or soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But this Jesus, the king of all the earth, had nowhere even, he had nowhere even to lay his head. Look at the choosing of the disciples, of of, of the disciples of Christ. Did Christ choose some Hebrew or or Greek scholars? Was there a Plato or or Socrates uh, among among his choosing? No, he chose fishermen. He he chose a, a tax collector. He chose the things that were not. And why? Why? So that he would get the glory, so that no one could say, That it was by human wisdom and power, but only by the power of the one who has all wisdom and all power. None can get the glory. None can get the glory but God. Then we reach verse 13. Probably the most controversial of this chapter. And quoting from the book of Malachi. He says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Usually we have a a hard time understanding why and, and how God could hate Esau. But church, what should confound us, what should keep us up at night, what should have men and women pondering for ages to come is how a perfectly righteous and holy God could ever love Jacob. How God could ever love any of us. As Amos so powerfully preached on the depravity of man last week. And if we understood, if we understood that text correctly, it should have left us with no hope. None. That none is righteous. 
No, not one. None seeks after God. All have turned aside. Our mouths are open graves and we are swift to shed blood. If not physically, then you commit it in your heart when you hate others. Those who are outside of Christ do not know peace and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Scripture tells us that even our best works are as filthy rags because they come from a sinful and a filthy heart. But you might make an objection to God. You might say, oh, I'm not that bad. If you think that, that's because you only compare yourself to others and not the perfectly and holy God. He's the standard. He's the mark. And you've missed it. You've missed it by miles. So, of course, of course, God hated Esau. As Psalm 5 5 says, speaking of God, you hate all evildoers. But Esau, Esau, you say, he hadn't even been born yet. But once he was born, Once he was born, just like all who are outside of Christ, he would prove to be a sinner from his birth until his death. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Now, I do want to be careful here. I don't want us to think of God's hatred like that of sinful man. God is not led by any sinful emotions, but his hatred is a perfect, holy hatred that comes from a being who is all good and perfect in all his ways. If he is good, he must hate evil. And men are evil. But I thought God just hated the sin and not the sinner. I tell you, you can search in the scriptures day and night. You won't find that verse in the Bible. God does not just throw the sin into hell. It's not, but he throws the sinner into hell. You can't separate the two. You can't separate man from his sin. Now, God does have a general love for his creation. I I do want to mention that. He does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He reigns on the just and the unjust alike. So God does have a love for all his creation, but he does not have a special love for everyone. He He has a special love for his elect. But then you say, okay, okay, I I can see that now. I can see why God hated. I can see why God hated Esau. But look at the life of Jacob. He was just as sinful, if not more sinful, than Esau. Why is it right for God to choose to set his love upon him and not the other? Why is it fair for God to choose me but not my neighbor? Those should not be the questions. The question should be, why would God choose anyone? 
He's not obligated to save anyone. He doesn't owe man anything. Who is man? Who is man that God owes? Which brings us to our final point, a defense argued. Paul, anticipating these same types of arguments, says in verse 14, what shall we say, Dan? What shall we say to these things? Is there any injustice on God's part? Is God wrong for choosing some and not others? Let me say, if there's any injustice in God, then the whole world would crumble and break to pieces because he would no longer be God. There is no injustice in him. To be just is, his, is in his very nature. So Paul answers this question with an emphatic, by no means. Another translation says, God forbid. Paul is saying, how dare you even ask such a question? Of course, there is no injustice in God. But you still ask, why? Why has he chosen Jacob? Because if he did not choose Jacob, if he did not choose some for salvation, then no flesh would be saved. No flesh would be saved. Paul Washer once said, men don't come to God because they don't want to come to God. And they don't want to come to God because they hate him. Church, God is not in heaven trying to stop anybody from coming to him. Nobody will ever say, Lord, I want to come to you. I repent. And God is saying no. It is the opposite. Men are more than happy to run as fast and as far away from God as they can. But then you say, what about the free will of man? I would I would argue myself that man does have freedom. Now, some good brothers and sisters may may disagree. But in man's freedom, he would never choose God on his own. Man will always choose what he desires. And what does man desire? He desires himself and he desires sin. Outside of Christ, you are under bondage to sin. Romans 6 says that the unbeliever is a slave to sin. And Ephesians 2.1 says you were dead in sin. Dead, unable to respond to divine stimuli, as some have explained it. That is why God must make you alive. That is why he must make you alive. So if God does not elect some for salvation, all will have the same fate as Esau. So no, Paul says, there is no injustice in God. Esau received justice. He received what we all deserve, which is the wrath of God for all our our rebellion against him. 
But for Jacob, what did he receive? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Believer, why did God choose Jacob? Why has he chosen you? Why did he have mercy on you? Not giving you what you rightly deserve, that's what mercy is. It's because he loves you, and in saving you, he is glorified through his son. And it is right, and it is God's right, to have mercy on some and not others. A good analogy has been given many times. It's like a, a governor who has two criminals and they both deserve death, but he lets one go and the other receive his just punishment. Was that wrong? Did one receive injustice? No. One received mercy and the other received what he had deserved. Paul quotes God saying, For I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16 so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Believer, I want to say this. If God, or I should say professing believer, if God electing you causes you to boast in yourself, thinking that you were somehow special or better than somebody else, then you need to go to yourself and examine yourself and then repent. If we are in Christ, the unfathomable mercy of God should bring us to our knees. We have no right to be saved. We should all be condemned. It should have been us. It should not have been Christ. We have no right. God does not owe us salvation. He owes us death. Yet, yet he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just look at Ephesians 1. I'm not going to exegete the passage. I'm just going to read it. Verses 4 through 12. This is the electing love that God has for you. Even as he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the, full, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were, fir- who were the first hope to, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Wow. What a wonderful doctrine. What a wonderful truth. But after hearing this beautiful doctrine of what we refer to as unconditional election, a few more questions might arise. One might ask, how do I know? How do I know if I'm elect? Beloved, this doctrine is not meant for you to question your salvation in that way. It is meant to be a comfort. And what a comfort it is. If God elected you, if he is the author of salvation, then he will keep you. That is the implication. You are his. You are his and you will always be his. That's why it says in Romans 8, nothing will ever separate you from his love. Nothing. The secret, the secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to him. So we need not to worry about those things. But what we do know is that he has bought us and he will keep us. But how do you know? How do you know that you're elect? (laughs) Ephesians 4.13 You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You heard that you were a sinner that you deserve nothing but the wrath of God, that you were an enemy of God with no hope in the world. And you asked, you asked as they didn't ask, what must I do to be saved? And you heard of Christ, this Christ, the one who lived the perfect life, the one who came down in your place and taking the punishment that you deserve, dying on the cross. Nailing your sins past, present, and future there. And then vindicating himself by being raised on the third day. And then you repented and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you walk with him daily. Not in perfection, but in a new direction. If that describes you, then you are the elect. You are saved. You are in Christ. 
So you don't need to be questioning, oh, I wonder if God chose me. That is not what this doctrine is here for. If you have believed, he chose you. What about evangelism? Why evangelize if God has chosen? I'll say this. No one taught election more clearly than the two greatest evangelists, which were Paul and Jesus. This does not hinder evangelism. It enhances it. It should set it on fire because we know that our evangelism will be successful. Why? Because the Father will give to the Son all that he has chosen. So we pray. We pray for the lost fervently. We tell them of the excellencies of Christ We persuade men. Yes, that is biblical. Paul persuaded men. We persuade men and then we leave the rest to God. Some plant, some water, and then God gives the increase. I hesitate in saying this, but we should be preaching the gospel as if election were not even a thing. We are begging men, persuading men even with tears, that they may come to Christ. If you're a lost sinner today, repent. Come to Christ now. Don't worry about election. Don't worry about what God has done in eternity past. You now need to be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Fall on your knees now. Repent. Believe the gospel. As I said, these are two sides of the same coin, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Your responsibility is to respond. Respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't leave here today. Today is the day of salvation. Seek him while he may be found. Again, this doctrine is to be a great joy to the believer. And we've gone over a lot today. I thought it was necessary to to just break this down and and, and just see the truth in this. Even in some ways, it is a hard and difficult truth. But the Bible does teach it. We must teach the whole counsel of God. The entire counsel. That's what Paul said. He said, I failed not to preach to you the whole counsel of God. It's a doctrine to... Be great joy and comfort to those who are in Christ. An unbeliever, I tell you, the same Bible that speaks of predestination says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Finally, believer. I can't, I've said it many, many times, but I want to continue to say it. Be encouraged. What a beautiful doctrine. What a lovely doctrine. Without it, we would not know Christ. If we rail against it, because we're not, it's because we're not understanding our own sin and we're not understanding the holiness of God. It's perfect. No sin will stand in his sight. There's a reason that Acts 13.48 says, And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. 
Again, otherwise no one would be saved if they were not appointed, if they were not chosen. It's not by any works of our own, but it's because of him who called us, to him who chose us. As Amos preached last week, if we all stood on one side of the scale, and I'm sure I'm not quoting exactly, but if we all stood on one side of the scale, all humanity that has ever lived and Christ stood on the other, there's no way we would measure up. Last week should have left us crushed. Should have left us crushed, but praise God. Praise God he has appointed you to eternal life. Loving you with an everlasting and electing love. I want to end with what I see as a reversal of Romans 3, 9 through 18. God in eternity past would declare this of his elect. They will be righteous because they will be clothed in the righteousness of my son. They will understand as I will grant them wisdom and understanding from my mouth. No one seeks after God, they will, because I will first seek after them. All I give my son will turn to me and together will become precious in my sight. And they will do good because I will put good in them. Then their throat will no longer be an open grave, but their tongues will speak truth. And gentleness and kindness will be under their lips. Their mouth will be full of blessings and sweetness. Their feet will no longer be swift to shed blood, but swift to spread the gospel of peace. And their paths will be flourishing in pleasure, and the way of peace will be known by them because of the peaceful one. They will fear the Lord before their eyes. Praise God for the doctrine of election. Go home and rejoice in it. Bathe in it. Thank God for it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you know the desire of my heart. I by no means want to stand up here and leave anyone crushed or or anything like that, Father. My desire, and I know it's your desire because you love your people more than I could ever imagine, that we will understand what is on the pages of Scripture, that we would rejoice, that we would be glad. Lord, I ask that the preaching of this doctrine of unconditional election will do what it, has, what it is set out to do and just encourage your people that they will be delighted in you. Father, I pray for the unbeliever, Lord, that they will hear the message of the gospel of this great God and Savior, and that they would repent. They will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will be saved, 
that they will be counted among the elect. Father, I pray that in hearing this as well, it will give us even more of a burden for the lost and a joy in evangelism, knowing that you have already won, you have victory, you accomplished it. What you set out in eternity past, you accomplished it in real time. Oh, Father, give us joy. Give us peace. Give us understanding. We pray all these things in the name.